Thank you. Yeah. It's good to be back here. Um, the reading today is Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that uh, your spirit might be with us that you might open our ears, we might pay attention uh, to your word, and as we pay attention to your word, oh God, would you pay attention to us? Would, we hel would you help us to see Jesus more clearly, fully, more beautiful, because of the time we have spent together this morning, we pray in his name, amen. Well, good morning, it's, uh, it's great to be with you as a uh, as I said earlier, my name is Bryce, I'm the pastor here, and uh, we are diving into the book of Revelation for um, this Advent season. You know, we, if you had been, have been at Trinity over the last uh, couple of months, you know, we were looking at the first book of the Bible, and uh, the book of Genesis through the summer, fall, I thought we'd just kind of go to the other end of the book as we, as we get to a Revelation now. Um, the, the book of Revelation it reminds me a little bit, do you remember, maybe you uh, 
were, it, maybe it was the late 90s, sometime mid to late 90s, you're going Christmas shopping, you're walking through the mall, and you saw one of these pictures in the window of the mall uh, store. It looks kind of like a blurry, staticky image that came to be called the, the magic eyes uh, images. You remember, remember what I'm talking about? Um, you'd see people staring with their noses right up against these images. Digital images, it looked like you couldn't tell what it was, but apparently the trick was if you stare, put your nose right at the image, and you don't look at the image, but you're supposed to look through the image, past the image, past the surface, into something beyond that uh, a 3D image would leap out at you, and you'd see people standing at the, staring at these images and going, oh my gosh, there's dolphins. They're coming out of the... Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm going to keep explaining until heads start nodding. So it never, it never worked for me. It never worked for me. Um, but the trick, I, as I understand it, was to not look at the surface of the image, but to look beyond the surface, deeper below the surface, to see the reality uh, come to life before your eyes. You know, we spend much of our time, of course, focusing on the surface realities of life, and, and rightly so. Um, we think about the details of family and work, of, of food and friends, of fun and to-do lists and calendars and all these sorts of things. And of course, paying attention to everyday realities is necessary in our lives. But our hearts crave meaning and purpose. And we long to see the big picture and to do that, we have to learn how to look beneath the surface of things. And so this is what we're doing in, in, in the season of Advent. The book of Revelation is our guide. Uh, sometimes people think of Revelation as this frightening book that talks about some obscure realities in the distant future. But really, the book of Revelation is about God pulling back the curtains and showing us what's really going on, even now, beneath the surface. When people think about the book of Revelation, I think we are prone to two opposite errors. The, the first error of the book of Revelation is an error of overemphasis. Uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I remember kind of getting to the, the time where you, you'd turn on the radio and there would be you know, Christian preachers on the radio. I guess this is on the internet now, but um, and it seemed like everything, no matter what you were listening to, it always came down to the book of Revelation as the key to human history. And maybe you sat through some like complex, convoluted uh, explanation where there's maps and charts and there's some secret key that if you understand this secret key uh, and how, you know, these technological mysteries that would have been indescribable in the first century are coming to life in the, in the, in the you know, ancient or in the Near East in modern times or something like that. Uh, they all predict that the world is gonna end in exactly two years, seven months, and three days. All right, this, this overemphasis on the book of Revelation, thinking that um, everything comes down to the secret knowledge contained in the book of Revelation. On the other hand, another, another error, I think, um, and maybe in reaction to this first emphasis, the, the second is to underemphasize the book of Revelation. 
The imagery is unfamiliar to us, even just listening to Lillian, Lillian read that passage a moment ago, and you get to the end where Jesus gives an explanation for you know, the meaning of the stars, and, and uh, you're like, okay, but what about the whole rest of the chapter? Uh, it's unfamiliar imagery. Many places in the Bible we can pick up and read a few verses, and the meaning is immediately clear, but... How do we meditate on you know, the vision of an apocalyptic monster? Um, what, what encouragement for today do we draw from the prediction of the destruction of one third of the rivers on earth? Um, and so perhaps understandably we just give up on the book of Revelation or we, we leave it to the experts. But what I want us to see is that while many of the details may remain unclear at present, always the case in a good narrative. Everything we need to understand the book of Revelation is actually laid out before us in this chapter. Um, first, just think about the name of the book. And while I'm mentioning this, can we, can we just try to be clear about this? The name of the book is Revelation. It's a singular revelation. For some reason, we want to say Revelations. That's not the name of the book. Uh, <laughs> Could just please try? <laughs> um, but beyond that, think about the, the, what the word revelation means. Uh, when we think about the, the book of Revelation, we think about something that's confusing and convoluted, but the re- word revelation means that something is being made clear to us. If we said, last night I had a revelation, we would be saying there was something that was confusing that has now become clear to me. There is a truth that is being revealed. So the question is, what is being revealed? And if you look at the first, we didn't print this um, in in the worship guide this morning, but the first verse of the book of Revelation says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, that phrase is potentially ambiguous. The revelation of Jesus Christ could be understood in one of two ways. Does the revelation of Jesus Christ mean uh, that it is the, the revelation is the possession of Jesus, which means that Jesus is revealing something to us, or does it mean that Jesus is the thing being revealed? He is the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that in this case, the answer is yes. It's both. That what is being revealed to us by Jesus is the reality of Jesus. Revelation is making something clear to us, and what it is making clear to us is the reality of the cosmic Christ in the midst of human history. At Christmas, at his first advent, In a sense, Jesus brought into crisis human history. See, most ancient religions and cultures believed that at some point in the distant future, the world would come to some kind of cataclysmic end and God would reveal himself and the world would end in either bliss or, I suppose, perhaps terror. But what's being revealed at Christmas is that that future event, the revelation of God, has been brought forward into the middle point of human history. And so biblically speaking, everything following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was considered the end times. But Revelation 1, verse 7 also says that 
He is coming with the clouds, which is a reference to his return, his second advent. So we now are living in between the first advent and his second advent, his return. And Revelation is telling us that the one who is pierced in rejection is the one who has been invested with all authority in heaven and on earth. And he stands behind all of human history. That's what it means when Revelation says that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is behind all things and he is returning. And at his second advent, it will be as if the final piece of the puzzle of human history has at long last fallen into place and everything will be well. It might seem strange to be looking at Revelation during Advent, but the truth, I think, is that there's no better place for us to be focusing our attention as we enter this season. Advent is all about preparation. It is all about anticipation. And Revelation tells us what it is that we are to anticipate concerning the return of Christ. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says this. I love, I love this. He says, the book of Revelation uh, says that uh, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the people of God in their struggle against the forces of evil. It is full of help and comfort for persecuted and suffering people. To them is given assurance that God sees their tears, that their prayers are influential in world affairs, that their deaths are precious in his sight. Their final victory is assured. Their Christ lives and reigns forever and ever. He governs the world in the interest of his church, and he is coming again to take his people to himself in the marriage supper of the Lamb, to live with them forever, and to rejuvenate this earth. That's what Revelation is telling us. So this Advent, what is being revealed to us is the presence of the one whose hair is white, and he's not Santa Claus, the advent, the first advent of Christ was just the beginning of his cosmic takeover. So look with me at this passage and let's notice two things that John is revealing to us about our world here and now. The first thing that John makes clear to us is our present reality. Revelation was written it was really a, a vision that was given to the Apostle John and it was recorded by him at the end of the first century AD, the 90s AD, scholars tell us. And this is how John introduces himself in verse nine. He says, I, John, your brother and partner, and listen to this, he's saying, I'm with you. I'm your brother, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? For much of church history, there has been this idea or this kind of speculation about um, this thing called the tribulation and, and the idea that there's this future, like apocalyptic, traumatic period. But John says that he, when he wrote this in 96, probably AD, was already our partner in the tribulation. He was presently, almost 2,000 years ago, living in the tribulation. In fact, he says he's our brother, he's our partner, and don't miss this because he's telling us about our present reality. This is how he describes our present reality. He describes it as the tribulation 
and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's what we are experiencing now. In other words, the tribulation, biblically speaking, doesn't refer to some future time that is riddled with, I don't know, speculation or uncertainty, but rather it's a description of the period in which we have been living since the ascension of Jesus. The word tribulation uh, is a word that means trial or suffering. And John is revealing that the present reality for those who follow Christ is characterized by trial or affliction or suffering and that we endure with patience because despite all realities, or despite, rather, uh, despite all appearances, the reality is that Christ is on his throne. And I think this is really important for us to grapple with because, um, for, for a couple reasons. One is because we have, to, we, we have to understand this in order to understand what Revelation is, is about, what's at all. Because the view of Revelation that says Revelation is this kind of speculative uh, understanding of the future, of the, of the final days, um, implies that Revelation means something to us that is different than what it meant to John and the people that he was writing to. But the reality is that John was writing this letter, this book, to encourage Christians who at the end of the first century and going into the second century were suffering and were being persecuted for their faith under the reign of the emperor Domitian, the Roman Empire, uh, emperor, who among other you know, things that he did, um, used Christians as candlesticks to light the roads on the entrance to the city of Rome, tossed them into the arena to battle wild beasts for the amusement of onlookers, drilled holes into the skulls of Christians and poured molten lava into their head, or lava, molten metal into their skulls. Horrendous, horrendous uh, things. And John's writing to encourage um, Christians who are either facing that sort of fate or know um, others who have. Now, we might hear that and think, well, thank goodness we live in very different times. Uh, and we do, and we should be thankful for that. We live in a time where everyone that we are likely to encounter thinks that those sorts of horrors are unthinkable, and that is good. But one of the things I think that has happened is that we have developed the expectation that tribulation, that suffering, that trial, that affliction ought never be part of our present experience. In fact, um, I just started reading Charles Taylor, who's a, a Canadian philosopher, has this uh, monumental book, A Secular Age, uh, that I've just started working through. And one of the things that, that Charles Taylor is doing in this incredibly important book is he, he's talking about what secularism is and he's confronting the idea, I think the, the popular idea, that secularism is basically uh, belief in this world that we just subtract the idea that there is a God and everything else remains 
basically unchanged. And Taylor is saying that that's actually a, not, not a helpful way to think about what secularism is. What, what he's saying is that secularism is actually an alternate set of beliefs about the way the world uh, exists. For, so for example, he, he makes the point that um, to be a person alive today who believes in the God of the Bible, uh, there is an impulse that we feel to justify that belief in God in a way that feels very necessary today, uh, in a way that is very different than, say, for example, somebody who was alive in the year 1000 AD would have just taken that belief uh, for granted. And I think this is a really helpful thing for us to understand um, because it means that to talk about secularism is not like sort of a wringing of our hands and pining for the olden days, but, but rather to talk about the secular world that we live in is simply to be aware of the world that we live in today. And I say all of that in order to say this. One of the things that Taylor points out is that secularism is a belief system because, it, because secularism says, uh, well, secularism says that all life, all meaning, all purpose must be conceived of entirely in this worldly terms. Uh, without reference to God, an afterlife, a future state, or anything of that nature. And what that has done is it has created the expectation for us that we ought not to experience suffering in this life. Taylor points out, however, that for Christians, the Bible has always taught that while we do strive for human flourishing now, we strive for justice, we build schools and hospitals, we work towards the alleviation of poverty, that human flourishing will never be fully realized or accomplished in this life. It must always be understood with reference to God's future. And so when we think about the context of the secular world we live in, Christians should not be so much bemoaning the awful world that is out there beyond you know, the walls of the church or, or whatever, as we should be interrogating the extent to which secularism has crept into our way of believing and reshaped our own faith such that we expect to experience a life that is devoid of suffering. There are numerous, the Bible is, the New Testament is littered with um, passages that encourage us uh, to persevere in the midst of suffering. In fact, 1 Peter 4 says this, do not be surprised when you face trials of many kinds as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised when you face suffering. The Bible is, is littered with these sorts of encouragements and the point is always this, um, I feel like I should be clear to say, the Bible is not masochistic. The Bible isn't saying somehow enjoy suffering. Rather, the Bible is saying um, again and again that as we endure suffering, we are bearing witness to the reality of who Christ is and what God is doing in the world. Verse nine, again, John describes our present reality. Your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. What he's saying is that our current suffering is our patient witness to the glory of Christ. That the essence of love always involves the willingness to suffer for the sake of our beloved. 
And so what's being revealed to us this Advent is not some secret way to escape from suffering, but what's being revealed to us is the one who is with us in the midst of that suffering, our present reality. But the second thing that I want you to see, and having kind of set, I mean, how's everybody doing at this point? That was kind of a festive way to begin the holiday season, right? But we have to understand our present reality if we're going to be stunned at the gospel surprise in this passage. The the shock of the gospel, I love how Revelation, uh, one of the things that you see so regularly in the book is that John is just stunned at what he sees. Verse 17, I fell down as though dead. John, the beloved disciple, Uh, John, who walked with Jesus for three years in his earthly ministry. You know, John, who ran uh, on the first Easter Sunday when he and Peter heard the rumor that Jesus was alive. And John runs to the tomb and outruns Peter and wrote that in his gospel for all time. (laughs) I am faster than Peter (laughs) to witness the resurrection. He hears a voice, and when he turns, he sees who it was who has spoken, and he is stunned by the presence of Jesus. Okay, the gospel surprise is the Sunday school answer. In this case, it's Jesus. And I think that we need to just kind of, if we can, take a step back and and, and say, how does that land with you? Because... I think we have come to expect or, or just think of Jesus as a pretty mild character. I um, heard a quote from um, Tom Skinner. Tom Skinner is a, uh, he's passed away now, but he was a uh, African-American minister in Harlem in New York City. And he um, was involved in a really rough uh, life at, at, uh, at one point and then was converted, became a Christian, uh, becomes a minister, and he once was telling his uh, kind of his testimony of coming to meet Jesus, and he talked about seeing pictures of Jesus when his parents would take him to Sunday school when he was growing up as a boy, and he said, I would look at these Sunday school pictures of Jesus, and he had, you know, the coiffed long hair and that kind of dreamy look in his eyes, and, and uh, Tom Skinner said, I don't know who this guy is, but he wouldn't last 10 minutes in my neighborhood. <laughs> and that is often how we think about Jesus. But John turns, and he sees the triumphant king who rules and reigns and upholds all things with the word of his power. And listen to the way several of the metaphors that John is using in this passage to describe Jesus. He's not telling us what Jesus looked like. He's telling us what Jesus was like. Verse 13, he says, I turned and I saw one like a son of man. It's an image from the book. A lot of the imagery in this chapter is drawn from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and the when he says, I saw one like a son of man, it's an image from, from the book of Daniel, the prophecy, Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. The son of man is the exalted human being who brings an end to the successive world-dominating empires and ushers in the kingdom of God. 
He has authority to judge his church and to judge the world. It's a title, the Son of Man is a title that conveys authority. What John is telling us is that when he turned, he saw the figure towards which all of human history has been marching. It is the most arrogant, um, audacious title imaginable in the ancient Near Eastern world. To say that he saw that Jesus is the Son of Man is either the most arrogant claim or the most profound truth. He says, um, verse 17, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. What does it mean that his hair was white like wool? Well, what does it mean if your hair is white like wool? <laughs> I'm getting a little bit more and more white like wool hair uh, in my 40s. It's a reference to Daniel 7, verse 9, where Daniel said, I, as I looked, has this vision, and he says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as wool, and the hair of his head like pure wool. It's a picture of the purity of divinity and the wisdom of old age. But it's saying that he is not just old, he is the Ancient of Days. He has seen it all because he created it all. And so he has perspective on all. He has the wisdom that only comes with having been around a long, long time. And he's seen everything. That's how you get perspective, having been around for a while. I remember years ago, uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I have four kids. And... Um, I remember when I think it was our third son had uh, just been born and we had uh, some younger friends over at our house and I was holding uh, you know, our baby and the pacifier in his mouth, you know, he started screaming or something, pacifier falls out and hits the floor. And our younger friends who are pregnant and expecting their first child, she grabs the pacifier and picks it up and she says, do you want me to wash it off? And I said, if it'll make you feel better. <laughs> because the parent of the first child, you know, is only going to put a clean pacifier in that kid's mouth. But the parent of three is, has been around and has seen some things and doesn't freak out over every little thing because you've seen other children, you know, do all kinds of things with their pacifiers and stick it right back in their mouth and they live to tell the tale. And so we assume that it will continue. Jesus has seen it all before. You know, we get so rattled by our circumstances, but Jesus has seen it all before. He has seen his people when they live under the control of cultures and governments and rulers that are hostile to them. He has seen his people when they lose their jobs and they're scared. He's seen his people when they have weathered a recession He's seen his people when their children grow up and turn their backs on their parents. He's seen them when they come back and when they don't. The one who is behind the scenes and in control of human history is not shaken or flustered by every change in our circumstances because he has seen it all. He has the wisdom of age because he is the ancient of days. Third thing we see in verse 15 
is that his voice, John says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The sound of many waters is an image that is found throughout the book of Revelation, but it comes from Ezekiel chapter 43, which says, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Do you see the connection there? Ezekiel says it's the glory of God that is coming that had the sound like the roar of many waters. And John in Revelation 1 is saying, I look and I looked and I saw the one whose voice was like the roar of many waters, and it's Jesus. You know, some people say you can look throughout the New Testament and it's hard to find a place that says that Jesus is God. The, 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 the book or the chapter of uh, Revelation we're looking at here, Revelation 1, is perhaps the single most place in the New Testament that, that the, revela- the, the divinity of Jesus is made most clear. The one whose glory, the, the glory of the Lord is like the coming, uh, the, the roar of many waters is the one who John hears here. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Makes me think of that, you know, uh, kind of truism. Why do we, um, why do we whisper when we are imitating the sound of a stadium full of people? You know, the roar of the crowd went ah. It's just indescribably loud. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I drove up to Big Sur as far as you could get before the highways closed, and walked down to one of the beaches and. You've been there, perhaps. It's so remote, it's so rugged, and there's just waves, just relentless waves. And I was thinking about you could live on the coast there, and it would never be quiet because of the roar of many waters, just relentless power. It's remote, the crashing of waves, the sound that overpowers and drowns out everything else. John is saying his voice is loud, but it's also full of authority. His word is like a sword. He speaks, and it happens. With his word, he created the universe. With his word, he can heal disease and bring the dead back to life. With his word, he can bring both punishment and reward. He can calm our fears, or he can give us something to be afraid of. And then it says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says his face is warmed by the gaze of of Christ and he has to look away because his face is so brilliantly bright. And I think it's easy for us to to read this and think, you know, uh, we're, we're so used to special effects, right? What would this look like in a movie? We've seen things, and even live performances perhaps, that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, people would have explained by reference to magic. And we can look at this and think, you know, it's really hard to impress us. We've seen everything. We, we misuse words like awesome and epic. If you go out to a meal, your server will bring you a sandwich and say, how's everything? And you'd be like, epic. I'd be like, awesome. It's like, it's a sandwich. (laughs) But even unpacking these images almost seems to defeat the purpose because the point here is that Jesus is staggering and stunning. 
And he stands behind all of human history as the most powerful, weighty person with whom all people must come to terms. When John sees him, his old friend, he is terrified. He says, I fell down at his feet as though dead. But then there's a word of comfort. He says, I fell down as dead, but, but he's comforted. And here's what John is revealing to us. He said, I thought I was dead, but then Jesus put his hand on my back. And he said, do not be afraid. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is what we need to see at Advent. This is how Advent transforms the way that we experience life in a world that is trying to avoid suffering and living escapist fantasies in the pursuit of endless youth. Jesus says, do not be afraid because the worst thing that can ever happen to you is in my hands. I hold the keys of death and hell. And your death is not the final word because the one with hair like snow and a face that glows like the sun has conquered death and the final enemy is defeated. John Donne in his holy sonnet said these words, one short sleep passed and we wake eternally and death shall be no more. Death has died. And if you know that is your future, it will utterly transform your present. Can you imagine what we would do in the present if we believed that nothing could hurt us in the future? That's what is being revealed to us. And so as we begin Revelation, uh, this Advent series, in this Advent season, um, you know, we begin Advent and there's always this flush of excitement and a flood of activity. Uh, but I think Advent and this, the preparation for Christmas so often brings with it like this flood of mixed emotions, right? There, there's the joy and the excitement, but so many that we encounter, perhaps ourselves, are also overwhelmed by deep grief. Perhaps it's the first holiday without someone. Perhaps it is a reminder of ongoing challenges with health or relational suffering or with individual isolation. Perhaps it's the hectic schedule, maybe the year-end push at work to finish that final project or to close that last sale or to meet the financial projection. Maybe it's just the relentless pressure to have the perfect holiday. Advent puts this all into perspective. It dignifies and honors our work and it comforts us in our grief by revealing what's really true, that if present appearances could be pulled back like a curtain, right as close as a breath stands the one who holds all things in his hands and he is unspeakably beautiful. He is with us even now even as we await his final appearance. This last week, a friend shared with me this video. It's a video that's on YouTube. The scene opens and it's an image of a pretty drab looking food court mall. And 
a woman is talking a little bit too loud on her cell phone and it begins to zoom out when all of a sudden this woman on her cell phone stands up and breaks out in singing the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. And after a couple of lines, a man who's wearing a hoodie and eating at Arby's stands up and joins in. And then a mall custodian sets down his broom and he begins to sing and then a couple with shopping bags until eventually 80 members of the chorus of Niagara are singing in this shopping mall. But the amazing thing is the response of the crowd. People just going out to get their Christmas shopping done, stand in awe, some of them recording with their phones. Many people stand, which is the, tra- the tradition when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung. They stand and watch as this choir sings, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. And every face is filled with wonder, many holding back tears. And as of this week, my friend sent me this video. This, this video has been viewed over 56 million times on YouTube. And the question that that raises for me is why? Anybody can go onto Spotify or YouTube or whatever and see countless uh, you know, recordings of Handel's Messiah. Why so much interest in this one? I think what makes it compelling is the contrast between the beautiful music and the drab everyday reality of the food court mall. Sacred music is breaking into the food court. Could it be that we are starved for beauty? And we have technology, we have entertainment, but where is the beauty? At Advent, what we are remembering is that the cosmic Christ has broken into the ordinary realities of our lives. What if we stopped what we're doing and began to sing along with him? What if the allure of beauty, of glory, pulled us towards God himself? Friends, this is what Advent is all about. C.S. Lewis wrote this, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. What we want is something else which can hardly be put into words. What we want is to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Advent tells us, Revelation tells us, that the one who is the embodiment of that beauty is as close as the air we breathe. And one day he will return and that will be our reality. Amen, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this stunning glimpse of what you are up to in the midst of human history. And God, we pray that as we gather for worship throughout this season as we sing, as we go to parties, as we prepare and wrap presents and decorate our homes, that we will not just be going through the motions, but that we would be motivated by the glimpse of glory that you have revealed to us in this passage. Oh God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.